from the BBC in London, this is Robin Lustig with NewsHour. Sixty minutes of news, comment and analysis from around the world. In this edition, the first plane load of United States troop reinforcements ordered to the Gulf by President Clinton has arrived in Kuwait. We'll be hearing live from Baghdad as both military and diplomatic moves continue, and we profile the man who may be able to prevent military conflict, the United Nations Secretary General Kofi Annan. There have been violent incidents on the Indonesian island of Sulawesi as demonstrations continue over rising prices. We'll be hearing live from Jakarta. We'll be asking if cannabis should be made legal after news of a United Nations report which says that it's no more harmful than tobacco or alcohol. And we'll be hearing why scientists want to find out what makes tomato ketchup so difficult to get out of the bottle. But first, the news in detail from Guy Francis. The first United States troop reinforcements have arrived in Kuwait as the crisis continues over Iraq's refusal to allow unhindered United Nations inspections of suspected weapon sites. Meanwhile, in Baghdad, the UN Humanitarian Office has begun evacuating its staff as a precaution against a possible military attack. The move comes a day before the UN Secretary-General, Kofi Annan, still seeking a peaceful end to the crisis, arrives in Baghdad. George Ekin reports from Kuwait. More than 380 soldiers streamed off a charter plane at Kuwait International Airport, the first arrivals in an airlift that's expected to take at least three days. The troops from Fort Stewart in Georgia are part of a mechanised infantry division. Up to 6,000 of them will fly into Kuwait, collecting equipment from a depot north of Kuwait City and heading out into the desert. The Americans have left heavy equipment such as tanks and artillery in place here since the end of the Gulf War, so they can deploy an entire armoured brigade quickly. The reinforced ground troops will also have attack and observation helicopters at their disposal. The US ground commander here, Brigadier Paul Mikolashek, said he hoped the reinforcements would boost Kuwaiti confidence. The Emirate has been warned by Iraq that allowing its bases to be used for Allied airstrikes would be a deadly mistake. But while there's considerable anxiety about the possible threat from Baghdad's chemical or biological weapons, military commanders say that there's no sign of Iraqi ground troops moving near the border. Gunmen in Georgia have kidnapped four United Nations military observers. The four, part of a UN team monitoring the return of refugees to the breakaway region of Abkhazia, were abducted from the town of Zubdidi and taken to a nearby village. Georgian troops have surrounded the kidnappers, as our Moscow correspondent Robert Parsons reports. The Georgian security services say the kidnappers are trapped in a house in West Georgia, encircled by troops and armoured personnel carriers. There are thought to be at least 20 armed men inside the building, together with their hostages, four UN observers from Uruguay, Sweden and the Czech Republic. They were abducted in the early morning when the kidnappers stormed the UN mission's headquarters in the town of Zugdidi. A Georgian government official said negotiations were underway with the kidnappers, but it wasn't clear yet what their demands were. He linked the instance to last week's assassination attempt on the Georgian president, Eduard Shevardnadze. Several men in West Georgia have been arrested in connection with the attack, and it's thought the kidnapping may be an attempt to secure their release. Two Russian cosmonauts and a Frenchman have safely returned to Earth from the Russian space station Mir after a special rescue effort because of snowstorms at their touchdown point. The capsule carrying the three men landed by parachute in high winds and below zero temperatures in northern Kazakhstan.
Because of the extreme weather, only one of eight helicopters standing by to welcome them was allowed to take off with doctors and rescue workers, while recovery vehicles followed by land. The two Russians have spent more than six months in orbit undertaking emergency repairs. The International Red Cross has finally organized the first airdrop of relief supplies by transport plane to survivors of the earthquake in northern Afghanistan two weeks ago. The Hercules plane dropped crates of goods to villages near the epicenter of the earthquake, which killed at least 4,000 people and left tens of thousands more homeless. As the weather improved over the region, two Russian helicopters also flew in deliveries of food and medicines and a big road convoy crossed the river Oxus from neighbouring Tajikistan. A Japanese politician, Shoke Arai, who was being investigated in connection with a continuing corruption scandal, has committed suicide. A legislator for the ruling Liberal Democrat Party, he was facing arrest on suspicion of having taken a bribe from a brokerage firm. Patrick Walker reports from Tokyo. As the Japanese parliament prepared to approve the arrest of lawmaker Shoke Arai, the 50-year-old politician decided to take matters into his own hands. Mr. Arai hanged himself in his room at a Tokyo hotel just hours before his expected arrest for involvement in a stock scandal. A member of the ruling Liberal Democratic Party and former finance ministry bureaucrat, Mr. Arai was accused of having demanded guarantees of profits on an account he held at brokerage Nico Securities. Such a guarantee from the brokerage would have involved discretionary transactions or loss compensation, both of which are illegal under Japanese law. There have been new disturbances in Indonesia over the economic crisis and rising food prices. Several thousand students at Kendari on the island of Sulawesi attack shops and offices and burn tires. Reports from Kendari say they also threw stones at police and troops but were prevented from reaching the main business centre. Many of the properties attacked belong to members of Indonesia's ethnic Chinese minority who have been a target for public anger over the crisis. BBC World Service, and now back to Robin Lustig. The arrival of the first United States troop reinforcements in Kuwait came as the Secretary-General of the United Nations, Kofi Annan, was speaking in New York to reporters about his hopes for a diplomatic solution to the crisis as he set off on his way to Baghdad. It is, it is not an easy mission because we've had a rather difficult relationship with the government of Iraq and with President Saddam Hussein. And there's a great deal of suspicion on both sides and it is not going to be easy to overcome that gulf and get him to uh, understand what I'm, I've come to tell him. Did President Clinton pressure you and tell you, don't jam me, Kofi? I was surprised to, to see that uh, quote in the New York Times. We had a very constructive and useful discussion. And I've been, I did not only talk to President Clinton, I've been talking to lots of other leaders around the world. This is a serious business and we did have a very serious conversation. Race never came up in a conversation. Your predecessor, Javier Perez de Cuellar, said, uh, expressed doubts about the success of a mission like this. Uh, what did the two of you discuss, and are you worried about uh, repeating uh, what happened with him? We did talk, but I'm not too worried about repeating what happened to him. The times are different. 91 is not 90, 98. And therefore, I think, uh, and, and the elements are different. There's also history. 91, we hadn't seen the war. 
Iraq had been hit many times and knows what happens when the international community decides to use force. So I think that knowledge and that uh, history should also uh, help in these discussions. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Kofi Annan speaking there to reporters at a rather noisy airport in New York before setting off. Well, the UN is insisting that its decision to evacuate 29 of its humanitarian staff from Baghdad should not be taken as a sign that military action against Iraq is now imminent. Our correspondent Raghi Omar now joins us from Baghdad. Raghi. Thank you very much, uh, Robin. Well, as you say, only uh, a day before the arrival of the UN Secretary General Kofi Annan, all eyes here are turned to this decision by the UN to try and evacuate some of its staff. 30 have already left, and we understand some more will be leaving tomorrow. But the chief uh, UN humanitarian coordinator here in Iraq, Dennis Halliday, early this morning explained why this was necessary. It's purely a precautionary measure, and the Secretary General's office in New York and the head of security asked us to take this measure to just be ready in case everything doesn't work out as we all hope it will. It clearly diminishes our capacity, but um, it's a temporary device. We expect to be uh, to see these people come back next week. And one needs to be careful with uh, staff, and uh, precautionary measures are just common sense. That was uh, Dennis Halliday, the UN's chief humanitarian coordinator here in Iraq. But as we were hearing earlier in that uh, clip of the UN Secretary General Kofi Annan, the crisis now turns uh, on his visit. It's being described in many ways and quite truthfully as a make-or-break visit that could define whether uh, this crisis is resolved by military action or by negotiations. Uh, my colleague John Lyne now looks at Kofi Annan, the man and the diplomat, in this report from New York. Kofi Annan. Solemnly swear. Solemnly swear. When Kofi Annan was sworn in as Secretary General a year ago, it was a breath of fresh air for the United Nations. The members and staff of the organization warmed to a man without the airs and graces of his predecessor. His current spokesman, Fred Eckhart, has known him through much of his career at the United Nations. Well, he's considered to be one of us. He grew up in the system. He's been 30 years in various parts of, of the United Nations. Uh, but it's more his personal style. Uh, he's an inclusive person instinctively. He draws people in. He builds consensus before he takes a management decision. So his, his management style is, is friendly and effective. Kofi Annan himself is very much a believer in the UN virtues of quiet diplomacy behind closed doors. The kind of work I do and the kinds of solution I seek is often done behind closed doors in discreet consultations and negotiations and it is not something you do uh, in public. But these negotiations present special problems. According to Ruth Wedgwood, a friend and an expert at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York, the Secretary-General must be particularly wary of being caught between the rock of Washington and the hard place of Baghdad. He certainly can't afford to do shuttle diplomacy between Saddam Hussein and the Permanent Five of the Security Council. He's not anybody's messenger. Uh, he's really there, I think, to tie the ribbon on a package to give a little bit of dignitary salute to Saddam if that's what Iraq thinks it needs to top off the deal. There's a kind of protectiveness at UN headquarters over the Secretary-General they've grown to love. But the question persists. Is this apparently so decent a man 
ruthless enough to deal with the Iraqi leadership. I, I don't know if what is required to get a solution here is ruthlessness. One of the council members this morning quoted um, a Latin sentence which said, be firm in substance and show flexibility in form. To a large extent, the success of this mission depends not on the UN Secretary General, but on the willingness of Baghdad and Washington to avoid war. Nevertheless, Kofi Annan knows that for him it could be a turning point, defining the success or failure of his term in what's been described as the most difficult job in the world. That was my colleague uh, John Lyne looking at Kofi Annan, the diplomat, and also the man. But I think in some ways it's important to bear in mind that uh, this is uh, a make-or-break visit that could define how this uh, crisis is resolved, but also the extent to which he'll be able to negotiate is an important consideration, or whether he's coming essentially to deliver a message from the United States and the UN. Robin. Raggy, I was wondering, what do the Iraqis themselves make of Kofi Annan? Do they recognize him as a man who may be able to bring bring them something of what they want? I think very much so. I think that's exactly how they do see him. I don't think he's in any way being portrayed, you know, before he arrives as uh, as a puppet or, you know, people questioning his uh, integrity or honour. I think he's being uh, received with an open mind. I think there was a very interesting comment by the Deputy Prime Minister, Tariq Aziz. I spoke to him a couple of days ago at a rather crowded press conference, and I said, what do you want uh, from Mr. Ananas? And he said, we want him to come with an open mind and with a free will. I think if there's anything they question about Kofi Annan's visit, it's whether he's coming as a free agent, able to use his good offices to work out a compromise, or whether he's coming carrying a, 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 a diktat, a message in his briefcase. A difficult task indeed. Raghi Omar in Baghdad, thanks very much. The suicide of a Japanese politician who was expecting to be arrested for involvement in a stock market scandal came as the people of Japan are still trying to make sense of continuing allegations of government corruption. Two inspectors at the Ministry of Finance have been arrested after leading banks are said to have tried to buy information from the Ministry in exchange for golfing weekends and lavish dinners. The whining and dining culture is believed to be so widespread that now more than 500 staff at the Ministry are being investigated. Juliet Hindle now reports from Tokyo on how to bribe a Japanese bureaucrat. This video warns new civil servants in Japan about the temptations of their position. In the film, a young bureaucrat is bribed by a businessman who wants information on government contracts. It depicts exactly the kind of practice that got two finance ministry officials arrested last month on charges of accepting bribes from banks they regulated. A bank machine politely welcomes customers. Japanese banks have also been disgraced by this and other scandals. Until recently, all banks here had staff whose job it was to get close to finance ministry officials. They were known as MOFTAN, roughly translated as Ministry of Finance Managers. I spoke to one who didn't want his voice broadcast, but he didn't mind if an actor spoke his words. An important job of Moftan people is to set up meeting between their company presidents and the finance ministry. To do so, they have to arrange dinner parties, but they also have to do things like help relatives of officials. Earlier this week, the Prime Minister outlined his proposals for a new ethics code for civil servants in an effort to break the ties between business and bureaucrats. 
The first step is a massive investigation at the Ministry of Finance. Yukiyasu Ayama, himself a MOF official, has been given the job of rooting out corruption. The new Mr. Clean faces a huge task. I'll be interviewing 550 people who worked in departments related to the banking and finance industry over the last five years. I'll be asking what kind of entertainment they might have had. Japan has had this whining and dining culture, but we have to admit that it's gone too far and now we have to put a stop to it. But it's a position which has no teeth. Mr. Aoyama has no authority to bring charges against his fellow civil servants. The criminal investigation is being left to the Tokyo Prosecutor's Office. It may be easier for them to decide what is and what isn't a bribe. After all, for decades, if not centuries, Japanese officials have enjoyed close relationships with the businesses they oversee. Shigenori Okazaki is a political analyst at the securities house SBC Warburg in Tokyo. He explains the system. They're the same kind of people. You know, they, they come from the same university, same background. And also there is a mutual interdependence. The banks want information about what they can do and when the next inspection will be. Moff also wanted to know about how banks operate. So they needed each other. And also Moff of Shaw's wanted to places to work after they retire. civil service training video, the arrest of officials is described as a shock. In real life too, Japan was shocked, but it was the Ministry of Finance itself which has suffered most. It was once the bastion of Japan's elite, able to pick the best graduates from the best universities. Its image has been severely tainted, but not just on ethical grounds. Until this scandal, it was taken as read that the relatively low wages of civil servants would be made up for in power influence and countless dinners paid for by somebody else. Juliet Hindel reporting from Tokyo. Coming up next, we'll be hearing live from Indonesia after more violent unrest following protests over rising prices and we'll be reporting from India on the role being played by women in the elections there. You're listening to the BBC World Service. I'm Robin Lustig. This is NewsHour. The economic crisis in Indonesia is continuing to cause unrest. Some of the worst violence so far has been reported from the island of Sulawesi, where a march by thousands of students protesting against high prices ended with attacks on shops and offices. Well, on the line now from Jakarta is our correspondent Simon Ingram. Simon, how much is known about what happened in these latest protests? Still a little unclear, partly because this is such a remote uh, corner of the uh, the archipelago. But piecing it all together, it does seem that there's been rising tension in the town of Kendari over the past three or four days, culminating in a march by up to 10,000 students who attacked uh, shops and businesses um, and caused a considerable amount of damage uh, before being dispersed by troops and so and uh, police using uh, using sticks and according to one report, rubber bullets. Are the security forces now taking a rather tougher line against the protesters than they were perhaps some weeks ago? Uh, well, 
certainly the word has uh, been put out that uh, people caught rioting risk being shot uh, and in a number of instances although not as far as we know in Sulawesi so far that uh, threat has been carried out there have of course been the accusation that uh, troops have been standing by in some cases where mobs have set about attacking businesses owned by members of the ethnic Chinese community that doesn't seem to have happened in Kendari there as far as we know no shops belonging to the Chinese or anyone else have been actually burned down. Meanwhile in the capital in Jakarta itself what's the situation? quiet for now, although there was a demonstration earlier today outside uh, the main university. Several hundred students gathered and uh, staged a peaceful demonstration um, uh, protesting about rising prices and the general uh, turmoil in the economy and calling on the government to resign. Simon Ingram in Jakarta, thank you. Meanwhile, in the remote Indonesian province of Irian Jaya, there is a crisis of a different kind, famine caused by a prolonged drought associated with the El Nino climate pattern in the Pacific Ocean. Barbara Ford of the International Committee of the Red Cross is in Irian Jaya, and I asked her to describe the scale of the crisis there. The highland area of Irian Jaya has been affected by a very serious drought and leaving several tens of thousands of people very short of food for a period of several months. How difficult has it been to get relief to them? Well, it's extremely difficult um, because the only access to most of these villages is by helicopter or by foot, and by foot usually means several days walking. Have people died as a result of the drought? Yes, they have. It's difficult to know just how many people, but certainly there have been quite, quite a lot of reports. In areas where uh, we've been able to take food in, then people's health has improved and there are now very few deaths. But we do hear reports of, of other areas which have not yet got food where um, quite a lot of deaths are still being reported. Are you now able to take in what you think is required to alleviate the worst effects of the drought? We are working in, in one area, bringing food to about 14,000 people. How much help has been forthcoming from the Indonesian government? The Indonesian government has flown in some, some food. Um, what I was wondering was what effect, if any, the current economic and financial problems in Jakarta and uh, other parts of the country are having on your attempts and other people's attempts to bring relief to the people of Irianjaya. Is there any kind of connection, do you think? I don't know that I'm really in a position to judge that very well. Um, we, we have supplies of, of food, we have helicopters, we have fuel and we, we are able to operate. What are the prospects for the future as far as the weather goes? Any sign of it improving? Well, the rains have started and gardens are now growing well, but it will be still several months to harvest for, for many villages. So there's, there's a food gap, but we can see the end of that food gap. And if we can tide people over for the next few months, then they should be again self-sufficient in food. Barbara Ford of the International Committee of the Red Cross speaking to me from Irian Jaya.
In India, the independent commission which is supervising the elections which are now underway has ordered fresh polling at hundreds of voting stations and it has postponed the vote in the southern city of Coimbatore after car bomb attacks which killed at least 60 people. Our correspondent Susanna Price is in Madras in the southern state of Tamil Nadu. Susie, over to you. Thank you, Robin. Here in India, a quiet revolution is taking place in women's involvement in politics. Despite promises from all parties, fewer than 10% of the members of the national parliament are women. So in Tamil Nadu, as in other states around India, they're starting from the bottom up. A third of all seats here in village councils are now reserved for women. I visited one village just outside Madras where women are making full use of their new, if somewhat limited, power. Vasanti Dandapani and her neighbour prepare lunch in the kitchen. But Vasanti has other, more pressing problems on her mind. She's a vociferous member of the local village council, or Panchat, elected under the system which reserves a third of the seats for women. She joined because she wanted to help her community. I've always been interested in social work and when I thought that if I joined the Panchart, I would have more access to people and I could work with them. The meetings in the Panchats are lively affairs with heated debates over issues such as water resources being discussed here. There's a female president of this village council and the women, who make up half of the ten members, make sure their voices are heard. Before the quota system, there was just one woman on the council. Another council member, Mr. May Gandandan, said he personally welcomed the increased number of women, but that not all men in the village agreed. There are strong feelings among a few of the men because of the local council seats being reserved for women. That meant the men couldn't contest them, so a few of them do feel quite upset. This well has been one of the positive outcomes of women's involvement in the local council. The women on the council fought particularly hard for the well, against opposition from local landowners who thought they'd be a pushover. Srinivasan, who's a local activist, explains what happened. The opposition to the well being built and the pump set came primarily uh, because the concerned family which opposed uh, such a construction felt that the women could easily be submissive, that if they were threatened or if a litigation was put on them, it would mean that they would not undertake such development activities in the village. And were the women submissive? No. What they did was they felt that they should challenge such a thing. They dug into the village records and were able to produce this document which showed that in 1957 the person who had sold uh, this plot of land to the concerned party had earmarked this small area for any common activity of the village. But the men aren't giving up that easily. They're fighting four cases in the courts against the council and the battle looks set to continue. The village primary school, with nearly 200 children, which is supported by the local council, is thriving. But a short time ago, it looked very different. The authorities running the school abandoned it, and many of the buildings fell into disrepair. 
It was another project that the Panchet felt should be given priority treatment, according to head teacher Helen Primmel. Yes, yes, they helped a lot to um, uh, study and um, notebooks. Do you, would you like to see more women on the Panchet? I like because I'm also a woman. So I like that. The local councils are providing the women with a taste of power, but they will have an uphill battle before they're given the same opportunities on a national scale. Well, to discuss the position of women here in Tamil Nadu and across India, I'm joined by Maitali Shivaraman, one of the national secretaries of the All India Democratic Women's Association. Maitali, what kind of effect has bringing women into grassroots politics had here in Tamil Nadu? I'd say it has made a good impact. There are problems. Some of the women elected have faced difficulties in the sense they're not able to conduct the meetings, they're not able to participate, and there are also caste problems. Despite all this, I think there has been a very good impact because you see so many, you see them in hundreds taking part, saying something and uh, making a difference. Do you think women are really interested in taking up the reins of power or do you think they'll be content with staying on the lower local council levels? Well, you see, these women who are already elected to the local levels, I don't think they see themselves as uh, aspirants for um, higher uh, positions. But there are others, uh, educated people um, living in towns and cities who are interested in politics. So it's just a matter of uh, uh, drawing them in, you know, motivating them. One of the ways that was supposed to draw them in was legislation reserving a third of the seats in the National Parliament for women. Now that legislation hasn't been passed. What's holding it up? Most of the parties, barring um, the left, all the other parties took a position against this. Uh, not openly. Openly they all said, in fact in their electoral manifestos, they all said we are going to give them reservation. But when the bill came to the floor of the parliament, they had, um, they brought in other issues like, why don't you give uh, reservation for lower caste women out of this one-third reservation? This is a totally new criterion which will open a Pandora's box. Maitali, thank you very much for joining us. That's all from us in Madras. Now back to you in London. Susie, thanks very much. Susanna Price there in Madras. Business news now, and there have been difficult talks in Moscow between Russia and the International Monetary Fund over future loans. With more on this and the latest financial news, here's Max Foster. The IMF team, led by its managing director, Michel Candesou, are in Moscow discussing the next instalment of a $10 billion loan. News that there was a problem with the talks could have been an act put on by the Russian government to show it's taking a tough stance against outside interference. But many economists say Russia is precariously close to a financial crisis, and the government is desperately trying to convince opposition parties of the benefits to cuts in spending to preserve economic stability. Well, the IMF has briefed reporters in Moscow in the last hour. Live now to our reporter there, Rob Parsons. Rob, what can you tell us of the latest news? Well, it looks like the talks have gone pretty well between uh, Michel Kamdesou and Boris Yeltsin. Uh, it appears that the IMF has agreed to boost its loans to Russia and, crucially, to extend its $10 billion uh, credit to uh, Russia to the year 2000. And not only that, I mean, perhaps even more important for Russia, it's agreed that the loan instalments for this year will go ahead as, as, as agreed. How have both sides reacted to, the, uh, to this agreement? 
Well, I think the, the, the Russians are obviously very pleased indeed. It's a big relief to them. This, this is a crucial year, as, as Boris Yeltsin was saying earlier this week in his keynote address. Uh, this, could, this, this year is a turning point. Russia is in mid-stage uh, between uh, the past and, 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 and what it sees as the, the future of economic reform. If it gets it right this year, Boris Yeltsin was saying, there could be big growth ahead. So it sees this year as crucial, and, cru and crucial also are the IMF loans. Without them, the Russian economy will be in crisis. Will everyone in Russia be pleased with the deal that's been reached? Uh, well, it's hard to say. I mean, the, the, I suppose really the, the, the problem for many people will be uh, that when the, uh, when the IMF disperses loans, it disperses loans with conditions. Uh, and it will be wanting to make sure that Russia improves its, its tax collection rate for a start. And it will want to, sh want to make sure that the amendments that Boris Yeltsin has been talking about to the, to the Russian budget uh, this week will go ahead. That in particular is certain to, to arouse opposition from many members of the, of the Duma. Okay, Rob Parsons in Moscow. Thank you. Elsewhere, the first clear signs have emerged that Japan's exporters are switching their efforts to the United States and Europe as sales fall off in Asia. Japan's trade surplus with Europe has just doubled and exports to the US went up by two-thirds. And Market News Now and London's 100 share index a short time ago was up four points at 57.27. Earlier in Tokyo, the Nikkei average closed up two at 16,616. On the foreign exchanges, the dollars selling at one German mark 82 and 126 Japanese yen and the pounds at $1.64. And that's the business news. Max, thank you. Coming up next, we'll be talking live to an American singer for peace who is in Baghdad and we'll be reporting on an unusual conference here in London, bringing together religious leaders and bankers to talk about development. You're listening to the BBC World Service. This is Robin Lustig with NewsHour. It's now 13.33 Greenwich Mean Time, so let's have a summary of the latest news from Guy Francis. United States troop reinforcements have begun arriving in Kuwait as the crisis continues over United Nations inspections of Iraqi weapon sites. They are the first of a total of 6,000 expected over the next few days. Gunmen in Georgia have kidnapped four United Nations military observers. They had been monitoring the return of refugees to the breakaway region of Abkhazia. The Georgian Interior Ministry has just said that the kidnappers are demanding the release of all suspects being held following the failed attempt to kill President Edward Shavadnadze. Thousands of people have rioted on the Indonesian island of Sulawesi in the continuing unrest over economic turmoil and rising food prices. Student marchers attack shops and offices, some owned by ethnic Chinese, in the town of Kendari. A Japanese politician, Shokei Arai, who is being investigated in connection with a continuing corruption scandal, has committed suicide. He was a former finance ministry official and legislator for the ruling Liberal Democratic Party and was facing arrest on suspicion of having taken a bribe from a brokerage firm, Nikko Securities. The International Red Cross has finally organized the first airdrop of relief supplies by transport plane to survivors of the earthquake in northern Afghanistan two weeks ago. The earthquake killed at least 4,000 people and left tens of thousands homeless. And that's the summary. Guy, thanks. Well, more now on the crisis in Iraq, where later today an American singer who calls himself a peace troubadour is due to be meeting President Saddam Hussein in Baghdad. Let's put it into Oh. 
Well, that was James Twyman singing Let's Put an End to War, and he joins me now on the line from Baghdad. James Twyman, are you not at all worried that, in fact, your presence there is simply going to be used as propaganda by the Iraqis? Well, in a sense, I, I almost expect that, um, but I figure that that being used from one direction and used still from another could actually benefit um, this this plan for peace. What I mean is that, um, of course, the Iraqis are going to use this to to try and get their own point across. But my goal in singing the the Muslim peace prayer for Saddam Hussein is that perhaps in this moment of quiet and praying with music, maybe a miracle will happen. Maybe something will occur. That, that no one expected and you know music is a very powerful thing and perhaps something will, will happen you're that, actually going to take that your, will shift things. You're going to take your guitar along and sing to Saddam Hussein are you? That's that's um, exactly. We're going to be going to Saddam Hussein, and um, last night we gave a concert, the, the peace concert, um, and many people here in, in Baghdad came. And then I think tomorrow or Saturday we'll be going to be with Saddam and to sing this prayer. The goal then is to go to Washington to sing the the Christian peace prayer for uh, for President Clinton. Can you can you give me an idea? Sorry to interrupt you. Can you give me an idea of how it'll sound when you sing to him? Sure. Um, this is just a few seconds of the um, the Christian prayer for peace, which is the prayer of St. Francis. Oh Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me bring love. James, you, you presumably are aware that there are many people in the United States who would say that your very presence there, your agreement to meet the president, might actually be against American national interest. Yes, um, I'm aware of that, and, and that's the risk that, that I have to take, but um, I feel that my presence here is not at all political, it's, it's more spiritual. I, um, I did the same thing in Bosnia, um, I performed the peace concert during the war there, and that's the subject of the book Emissary of Light, which I wrote, and so this is not something that I do secretly. I write books about this and record records, and, and I think that this is just going to be an opportunity to um, to try and to go after this peace process, not through diplomats, but but through music and through prayer. And and tonight um, is at um, noon New York time, um, 5 p.m. London time, 8 p.m. Baghdad time. There's going to be the largest peace um, prayer vigil ever in history, where millions of people are going to be gathering together just for a few minutes at that time to pray for peace in Iraq. So we invite everyone to just take a few moments of silence um, to experience the the, the power of prayer and, and perhaps in this new beautiful way we can do something that the diplomats were not able to do. James Twyman in Baghdad, thanks very much indeed. More than 20 international religious leaders are in London this week for a joint conference with the World Bank on the subject of development. Among them are representatives of Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Judaism and Hinduism and what they're discussing is the relationship between material and spiritual development. The conference is taking place in the historic London Palace which is the home of the senior Anglican clergyman in Britain, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Our religious affairs correspondent Jane Little is there. 
Well, I'm here in the rather austere, dark corridors of the Archbishop's Palace and uh, from the walls of various past archbishops who are looking down on a rather colourful gathering below. Uh, those include monks and clergy and the odd businessman and woman in grey suits and they're winding down after an intensive two-day seminar on an ambitious agenda, how to improve development policies to take in more ethical and religious and cultural concerns of people involved. Not something, I might add, that the World Bank has had a good reputation for in the past. Well, a short time ago, I spoke with the Archbishop of Canterbury, Dr George Carey, and the bank's president, James Wolfenson, and I asked Mr Wolfenson, what have they achieved here in practical terms? We have, first of all, established a working channel of communication with a group of faith leaders that will allow us and those religions and shortly a broader group both in regions and in other faiths to address the question of poverty and to see how we can work better together in terms of alleviating the human condition. That is, I think, a very important practical step. Archbishop, a new partnership with the World Bank. What can religion, different religions here, bring to the table? What we can bring to the table um, are huge networks um, of um, religious communities in our communities. We're there in touch with our people. Now the World Bank, with its 10,000 officials who get up every morning and want to work, make the world a better place, can meet now um, at a different level with that great network of people who are already getting on with the job. But sometimes, I have to say from the faith community's point of view, sometimes our work is unfocused. And I think we can benefit from the expertise and ability of the World Bank. So it's a new form of partnership which I think will emerge from this and I'm excited by it. There are many different faith communities represented here, each with their own agendas. It must have been at times a very difficult dialogue. It can't have been easy. Well, we um, chaired the entire uh, dialogue and there were times actually when um, understanding um, what a person was actually getting at because they're working in a second or third language. Yes, it was difficult. Nevertheless, there was a meeting of the mind quite early on in the dialogue because we were trying to meet the same problem and that is many, many people, millions of people are hungry, go without basic human rights and that is something we've got to address. Mr Wolfenson, um, the bank has been criticised in the past for being out of touch with people's cultural and spiritual and ethical needs. Is this a new direction for the bank now? Well, I think that it is a continuation and maybe an expansion of what has been done in the past. We should be giving more weight uh, to the cultural and spiritual and that in doing so you are not just acknowledging belief and faith but that you are in fact improving the whole development experience and that in fact you're more successful in bringing communities together in dealing with their physical needs and in their self-respect if you can build on a basis of belief and culture that is a belief that i have it is something that is shared by many of my colleagues and in the years ahead we're going to do much much more uh, to reinforce uh, that aspect of our work how is this meeting going to translate into practical on-the-ground initiatives? Is it going to have a direct bearing on World Bank policies? Uh, there's no doubt it will. I mean, in doing this, we're establishing a policy. Uh, what needs to be done by us is to ensure that it is absorbed in the institution. 
briefly, Archbishop, are you convinced that this is more than just a historic, symbolic occasion? Yes, indeed I am. I believe that together we can make this world a much better place. Well, that was Dr George Carey and James Wolfenson speaking in very optimistic terms about the future. And among the other delegates here, from Chinese Taoists to American Jews, there is a general mood that the air has been cleared and they've all had the chance to express their own concerns. But there is also the sense that this is just one small step in the right direction. Back to you, Robin. Jane, thank you very much indeed. Jane Little, our religious affairs correspondent at Lambeth Palace. Coming up next, we'll be discussing the legalisation of cannabis after a report that United Nations experts said it was no more harmful than tobacco or alcohol. And we'll be talking to a scientist about why he hopes to discover just why tomato ketchup never comes out of the bottle when you want it. You're listening to the BBC World Service. I'm Robin Lustig. This is NewsHour. <laughs> A reminder of the main headline, the first plane load of United States troop reinforcements ordered to the Gulf by President Clinton has arrived in Kuwait. According to the British magazine New Scientist, the UN World Health Organization has suppressed a report which says that smoking cannabis is no more harmful than either smoking cigarettes or drinking alcohol. It says the report was due to be published last December, but was scrapped after a dispute between the experts who wrote it, WHO officials, and a group of external advisers. Well, I've been discussing the implications of all this with Peter Stalker, the director of the National Drug Prevention Alliance here in Britain, which campaigns against the legalisation of cannabis, and Graham Ball of the Independent on Sunday newspaper, which has been campaigning in favour of decriminalising it. I asked Peter Stoker if he accepts what the reporter is said to have concluded, that cannabis is no more harmful than tobacco or alcohol. Yes, I do, but it's hardly a, a stunning revelation. Everybody has been saying for as long as the, the 10 or 12 years I've been in the scene that cannabis is less harmful, but that's hardly the point. If a substance is less harmful than two others, which between them kill in excess of 150,000 people a year, that's, that's hardly a vote of confidence in cannabis. Graham Ball, if alcohol is dangerous and tobacco is dangerous and cannabis is no more dangerous but is certainly not 100% safe, is that an argument for decriminalising it? It, it is a, an argument for decriminalising it. The two other substances referred to, alcohol and tobacco, are licensed and, uh, and are available to adults in this country and there's no logical reason for treating cannabis in, in, a, in a different way. Peter Stoker, it is true at the moment, isn't it, that in most countries around the world, governments simply operate double standards? you are distinguishing between people consuming substances which are legal and being told not to consume substances which are not. Yes, but the legal standard is not the same. The legal standard is the same, but what's the difference between them is uh, that both uh, tobacco and alcohol came into Western culture a long, long time ago and are now broadly although it would seem decreasingly socially accepted. The difference between the illegal drugs, if you like, is that they are the genie which is still in the bottle. And uh, what people like myself are saying is that just because we've got two substances which do bring us a lot of problems, uh, that's no argument to introduce a third. Graham Ball, there surely is uh, an argument, as Mr Stoker says, that 
once you do allow free access to a substance, even though it's not medical harmful, it may have social consequences, you can't then undo that once you've let it out. Well, the law actually acts like a form of prohibition, and I think the example in America of prohibition of alcohol in, in the 1920s and 30s speaks for itself. It, it, it creates a large underworld, uh, a, a drug cartel culture, and makes a whole a, a social problem where no social problem need really exist. If you take the example of alcohol, alcohol is freely available in this country and has been for a number of years. The vast majority of individuals in this country do manage this drug without any real difficulty. What the decriminalising lobby are saying is that the same parallels exist right the way down the line and that Yes, we accept that vulnerable groups should be protected, I, by that I mean children and people with mental illness. But beyond that, it ought to be up to the individual to assess his own risk and how he treats this substance. It is not really up to the law to intervene in, in this a victimless crime. Peter Stoker, yeah. do you think that we ought at least to be entitled to see this WHO report in its entirety? I'm, I've got no objections to people seeing any uh, information they want. So I, I do find this particular term that the new scientist, uh, this issue, which I have to say looks more like a High Times uh, pro-pot magazine than a, a responsible scientific journal, uh, using the term suppressed is a bit bizarre. Um, well, it wasn't public, was it? If the WHO are being charged with uh, leaving out bits of information which don't suit a point of view, I mean, that is something that could probably be applied to everybody, and it would certainly, I, I submit, uh, apply to people who are arguing around this issue, in including the independent. But nothing that you have learnt about what seems to have been contained in this report changes your view that cannabis should remain an illegal drug. Absolutely. Peter Stoker of the National Drug Prevention Alliance with Graham Ball of The Independent on Sunday. The new international motor racing season starts soon and whoever emerges as champion, you can be sure of one thing, it'll be a man. Motor racing is probably one of the most male-dominated sports anywhere, yet its organisers claim that it is a bastion of sexual equality. Nigel Wrench has been testing that claim. The engine is actually at my engine builders in Bournemouth. Well, I can show you what, where it would go in that compartment there. Ilsa Cox races a small red hatchback that she calls Speedy. It's swift enough to beat 58 male rivals and make her the saloon car champion at the Castle Coombe circuit in Wiltshire. Until you actually start getting results, until you start setting that record, winning races, certainly you have to prove yourself much more greatly than a man would have to. Um, if, say, you spin or, or go off the track, immediately it's put down to because you're female rather than because you're new to it and you just need more experience. At it. On the track, the statistics show that Ilsa Cox is the exception. Just 2% of all racers are women, but the chairman of the British Women Racing Drivers Club, Susan Jamieson, is still keen to suggest that things are changing. For the first time in 97, we had two national championship winners. We had 19 outright race wins and 10 lap records. The two of those are driving single-seater cars, which is obviously the natural progression to Formula One, and uh, 
very eager to get into Formula One and they will try very hard. And Moss is waving Fangio up and they're going to go across the line in Echelon Port giving the victory to in the RAC Grand Prix of 1955 to Sterling Moss. There were no women in this Grand Prix though there was at least one racing at the top level at the time remembers the winner Sterling Moss. He's a man with a reputation of being a gentleman on the track but old-fashioned views on what he'd do if there was a woman racing against him. I like seeing women in racing. I think it's a jolly good thing. I mean, I'd always blow a kiss if ever I managed to, <laughs> to, to lap her. It's a female trait in the same way there aren't many uh, male secretaries in racing. I mean, not many women have the stamina. Men have usually got stamina. Now, there are women with great stamina. They have strength as well. But this isn't the norm. The noise of Formula One these days could not be more different, neither could its multi-million pound financing. But against one woman racing 40 years ago, there are now none at all in Grand Prix. If the views of Eddie Jordan, who runs Jordan Grand Prix and who now employs Damon Hill, are anything to go by, attitudes have, if anything, gone backwards. I think women are the best things on this God's earth, uh, number one, and I think there is a perfectly good and adequate place for them in, in ladies' races. Uh, and I think there are more and more ladies' races, which I think is the right environment for them to be in. I think there needs to be an element of fairness, and I think that they need to compete against themselves just like men compete against themselves in boxing. All of which comes as no surprise to Dr Judy Eaton of Coventry University, who's researched this field for the RAC, which runs motorsport in Britain. Segregating the sport is hardly the answer, she says. Stamina or strength is not the issue. Discrimination against women who do want to compete is. At the sport's pinnacle, the role models aren't exactly designed to inspire winners. Formula One has a particularly masculine image. Most of the women you see are purely decorative. They are there holding the umbrellas at the beginning of the race, or they're there as the guests of drivers or the sponsors. There tend to be very few females who are actually seen in any kind of active role at these meetings. And Damon Hill exits the chicane and wins the Japanese Grand Prix. So, what of the prospect of Murray Walker commentating on a woman winning the Formula One World Championship? Sterling Moss is characteristically blunt. And I don't think it will for a moment. In the same way, I don't think a man's going to give birth. But uh, And I just feel somehow that ladies are happy to look on and some of them join in, but uh, not really with the absolute, absolute intensity the man can get where he wants to win. At her home in Hove in Sussex, the saloon car champion Ilsa Cox roars away, safely, she emphasises, in her road car. Formula One, she agrees, would be very tough. But to Sterling Moss's comments, she has this riposte. I would say, get him out in an equal car with me at Castle Coombe and I'll, I'll blow him a kiss as I lap him. I bet she will. Ilsa Cox, Britain's saloon car racing champion, ending that report by Nigel Wrench. We've got more sport now. Here's Jane Thurlow. Yes, and we'll start with swimming. Officials from the world governing body, FINA, have said they don't believe China runs a systematic programme of doping. But a delegation that has just visited the country says it is disappointed by the lack of control exercised over local coaches and associations. The visit followed the recent positive drugs test on four Chinese swimmers at the World Championships in Perth. And the delegation confirmed that the four have now failed second tests and faced disciplinary actions. Action. FINA spokesman Sam Ramsamy says they've returned with mixed feelings about the situation in China. 
We are concerned by the number of uh, positive doping tests in swimming. But what we have discovered, to a large extent, this is the result of individual actions more than group actions. And that is why we have exonerated the Chinese Swimming Association. We believe that they are not involved in any systematic doping. And also, the other thing we have found is that the coaches have too much of say here. And I believe that it, although it is important, but nevertheless they have to be answerable to high authorities. And that should be taking place. And the Chinese swimming authorities have recognized this problem and they are going to do something immediately to correct the situation. And there are some coaches who work with their official organization, but many, numerous, work with provincial bodies, with their high schools and technical schools. And that's what we found. And we believe that that type of a system uh, is not conducive to general control of swimming in the country and as a result uh, individual actions bring a, a, a bad reputation to the national body. There's been another positive test for marijuana at the Winter Olympics in Nagano, but in light of the case brought last week by snowboarder Ross Baravagliati, the International Olympic Committee says it has no legal right to take action and won't name the athlete or the sport. And finally, the English Coca-Cola League Cup Final will be a repeat of last year's FA Cup Final. In his first match in charge of Chelsea, Italian striker Gianluca Vialli helped his side beat Arsenal 3-1 to win 4-3 on aggregate setting up a meeting with First Division Middlesbrough, who beat Liverpool. And that's the sport. Jane, thank you. Now, if you've ever tried to squeeze tomato ketchup out of a bottle, or you've wondered why shaving foam goes all gooey, you'll know that not all substances behave as we would like them to. Ketchup, for example, is a liquid, but it doesn't always behave like a liquid. And now scientists here in Britain have been given a government grant to try to find out why. They're led by Dr Peter Olmsted from Leeds University, so I asked him if he is going to be able to solve that ketchup problem. Well, I don't know if we can solve it with tomato ketchup, because that's actually a particularly complicated complex fluid. When we say complex fluid, we mean fluids which have big molecules in them, which give them internal structure, different from a glass of water when you take it out of the tap. Tomato ketchup will have suspensions of particles, small round particles, as well as suspensions of long linear string-like particles that we call polymers. And the interaction of the polymers and the, the small particles, the colloids, makes the flow properties very strange. If you can sort out exactly what's going on inside that bottle of ketchup which prevents the stuff coming out as quickly as we might like it to, does that then mean that the manufacturers can change it in some way to stop it happening in future? It's conceivable that that's the case, yes. Although if you think about it, well, one's not sure that one would want to do that. Because one of the virtues of ketchup is that it'll sit on your french fries and not drip off down to the bottom of the container. So that's what's helping you, but that's what's making it difficult to get the ketchup out of the bottle in the first place. I suspect that as scientists you're interested in more than our problems as tomato ketchup users. What's your motivation? We have a lot of motivation for these problems. One of the big motivations is trying to understand what happens to the structures of these complicated materials. Polymers, these long linear molecules that I talked about, that's what you get when you melt down plastics. So if you take a, a hard plastic and melt it down, you get a molten mixture of these long stringy 
polymers. And what we'd like to do is figure out when you deform this melt, this liquid of stringy things like spaghetti, how does it react? In one sense, it will flow like a liquid, but in the other sense, these strings will bounce back like rubber bands. And it's the combination of these flowing properties and the elastic properties that make this whole class of materials very challenging for physicists. Okay, assuming that you manage to find an answer to that question, assuming you are able to work out why these materials behave in the way that they do, what then will you be able to do that you can't do at the moment? Well, one thing we can do is we can make this information available, and that's what we're doing, to people who process plastics or who process food products or personal care products, and they can th find ways of making the process cheaper or tuning the process so at the end of the day they can get the properties they want. Oftentimes, like with a ketchup, the property you want is not quite the property that makes it easy to process. So if we can combine these things to make it actually easier to make, it'll be cheaper in the end run, and it'll be products that are easier to use. That was Peter Olmsted. I'm Robin Lustig. That's all from NewsHour. Goodbye. Listeners in East Asia are preparing to hear another edition of East Asia Today. And the rest of the world can look forward to world news, followed by today's outlook in five minutes.